Letter from Helvetica, brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk. Letter from Helvetica by Andrew McIntosh. Starring Andrew McIntosh as John Stotter and Natalie Rolls as Abigail Wesley. Chapter 7. What Goes On? The beach was such an archetype of a palm-fringe paradise that it actually seemed strangely absurd for a moment. The coral sand was blindingly white and searingly hot under my bare feet. The sea was impossibly blue, with Gloria standing off the shore like a pirate galleon. And landward, the beach merged into a steeply climbing tropical rainforest containing trees with leaves so green they looked as though they were lit from within. Perhaps it was my travel weariness, but the thought briefly crossed my mind that the scene might be manufactured to impress us, as though it were a film set. But slowly it dawned that no, this is real. This image that is sold to us from so many tawdry brochures really does exist, and can still be untouched and gloriously perfect. You just have to travel such an awfully long way to find it. As my attention was drawn towards the house, I was slightly rattled to see that what had looked like a structure of some solidity from the boat now looked disturbingly primitive. On all four corners, and at intervals along the walls, stretched tall timbers with their feet embedded deep into the ground. These provide the essential framework of the building. The exterior walls are then clad with woven bamboo, which is terribly in keeping with the local style, given that there is an abundance of the raw material, but at first inspection it seemed a tad frangible. Red brick it is not, and I remembered having read somewhere vaguely that Vanuatu is not a complete stranger to cyclones. Or is that typhoons? Or maybe hurricanes? Oh, they're all so confusingly similar when you're contemplating the structural integrity of your home for a year. The roof seems slightly more resilient, being thatched with what I recognised as Natangura leaf. I trust you're suitably impressed. However, it was when we stepped inside that we realised that the exterior was something of a tromploy. The interior walls are clad with what looks like good old-fashioned plasterboard, which immediately made me feel better. Although, of course, it's ridiculous, because if there should be a major weather event, I don't suppose plasterboard will protect us any better than bamboo. But it's what you know, ain't it? You can take the girl out of Surrey, but you can't take the... etc, etc. We were all struck with how wonderfully dark and cool the interior was. The floors are made of the same timber as the verticals, pine as it happens, and give off a wonderfully burnished glow. The ground floor has two bedrooms off a wide corridor running along the right side of the building. The walls are hung with copious examples of genuine local art, 
and everywhere there is a profusion of plants, both in containers on the floor and hanging from the ceiling and walls. Dreadful amount of watering, my dear. Each bedroom, though roomy, is furnished in a basic way but has a lovely style to it nonetheless. The wooden beds have simple but exquisite linen on them and mosquito nets hang from the ceiling over each like bell-shaped protecting veils, which is just as well as malaria is not uncommon here. Although, interestingly, some Melanesians have a gene that protects them from malaria. Do stop yawning, uncle. There are simple wooden bedside cabinets and washstands, and absolutely vast wooden wardrobes that one could easily accommodate a whole nother family in. The kids took great pleasure in hiding in them, much to mother's consternation. I had visions of them crashing to the floor, squashing my babies under their great weight. But Egbert assures me that they are securely fastened to the wall. The bedrooms don't have windows as such. They have bamboo flaps that hinge outwards and upwards and are kept open with wooden stays. Given the heat, they have simply remained open since we first arrived. Beyond the bedrooms, the corridor opens out into an open space towards the front of the house, where there is a desk and a chair, my desk and my chair for when I need to write up notes or communicate with the larger world on the laptop. All right to you. The whole of the front wall of the house is taken up by two vast doors, French windows, if you like, that swing open so that one can reap the reward of the stupendous view, whilst at the same time being both sheltered from the sun and caressed by the breeze. One of the things that strikes one about local Ni Vanuatu building is that the boundaries between the indoors and outdoors are infinitely more blurred than we are used to. Windows and doors are left open for the breeze on a pretty much permanent basis, and since theft and crime against property are pretty much unknown, there is no need for locks or other security. Cooking, which I'll tell you about in a bit, is done outside, and indeed, the Ni Vanuatu regard the area just outside their houses as extra living space. However, I did not expect the bathroom arrangements to be quite so alfresco. Both bedrooms have a doorway in the outside wall that leads to a large communal shower area at the side of the house, screened by bamboo. Two rather impressive shower heads extend from the wall so that you can ablute with a chum if you so desire, and there are simple drain holes in the ground. The screen extends outward and then curves around in a companionable way, but stops short of being an entire horseshoe shape, so that one is allowed egress to the toilet and allows ingress to anyone who wants to converse with you when showering spot, for example, or to wash up, more of which later. Water comes from a borehole situated some way into the forest. An electric pump draws it from an underground stream and sends it on demand via underground pipes to the house, providing us with cool, clear water that is safe and sweet to drink. 
A tank is concealed within the roof space and stores water for the shower. If left long enough there, it is heated simply by the warmth of the sun and, given how high it is situated, provides tremendous pressure. If you're too indulgent, though, and empty the tank, the next to use it has to put up with the groundwater straight from the well, which is jolly cold, I can tell you. The wastewater drains off towards the lagoon but passes through a series of planted reed beds first. These purify the wastewater before it can finally reach the sea. Blooming clever eco-stuff, this. Human waste, however, is an entirely different matter. The toilet is worthy of a whole letter to itself. Actually, it's worth a whole research paper. It is contained within a sweet little hut which stands high upon a platform a few yards away from the main building. It has a little chimney perched jauntily on the roof and a wooden staircase at the front leads to a door made from the ubiquitous bamboo. Inside, there is what looks like a fairly conventional toilet, but it is underneath where the magic is woven. In essence, and I do hope you are eating as you read this, our collective poo and we disappears into a receptacle below where it is transformed by multifarious and miraculous bacteria and fungi until it is a pathogen-free loam. This we regularly cart up to the top of the beach in order to fertilise a little fruit and vegetable garden that Douglas has had created at the border of where the sand ends and the surprisingly rich topsoil begins. In truth, if this were Europe or the USA, I am fairly sure that some law or other would prevent us using it for the growing of food, and indeed I felt a bit squeamish about it at first. But Martin has assured us that it's completely safe. Indeed, we have been eating fruit and veg from the garden for a month now with no ill effects, and I have become a fan of this most fundamental form of recycling. The composting process is incredibly effective at killing off vicious bugs like E. coli and roundworm, even in Vanuatu's very humid climate. And amazingly, there is no pong. A little aerating fan sits above the turgid pile, providing vital oxygen for the composting process and diverting any malodors up aforementioned sweet little chimney. And if you have ever walked into a bathroom after Richard has done his daily duty, this innovation is more than welcome. You'll be pleased to hear that given its elevated nature, any trip to the bog now is referred to as visiting the poop deck. <laughs> Most edifying. So, back to the house proper. As you exit through the French windows in my study, you step straight down onto the beach. To the side is a staircase leading to the balcony on the top floor above. If you wish to attain the top floor without having to step outside and scuttle across the broiling sand, well, tough. This is Burbango. The balcony is vast and allows the most magnificent views to the south, over the ocean and on towards the coast of Eme which lies upon the near horizon. 
MA has twin volcanic peaks of pretty much identical height, which from our angle look like two rather magnificent and pert breasts complete, it has to be said, with nipples. Richard thinks that this means that it must in fact be Bikini Atoll, which just doesn't work for me in any way, shape or form. I mean, she's not even wearing a bikini. Ah, there I am being dragged down to his level. The balcony is furnished at one end with a large, rough-hewn and functional dining table with room for eight chairs. At the other end is a huge swing seat that can easily accommodate three adults, made from a lovely wood that I did not recognise. When I asked Egbert, he said that it's made from Natapoa, which didn't exactly enlighten me, and he didn't have an English alternative for it. Notwithstanding, of course, because it's for sitting on, for no, the bench part is padded, which is a great luxury. Your standard English wooden bench seat is so harsh on the posterior, don't you find? More French window bamboo doors lead one from the balcony into the upstairs living area, stroke kitchen. This has most definitely been furnished in the native style. Bamboo and pine predominate. However, the upper floor, being entirely open, is absolutely vast, so everything appears a little lost, frankly. But then who cares? Most of life is lived outdoors or on the balcony or on the beach or in the forest or on the water. The kitchen area off to the right-hand side is small but functional. It has a sink and a four-ring electric hob, although there is no oven, as well as a decent amount of storage space for crockery, pots, pans, etc. Against the front wall there is the most enormous and incongruous American-style refrigerator. In amongst all of the wood and the bamboo, it strikes a most clashing note. But then, apart from the vegetable garden, a goodly proportion of our produce comes by boat, and none too often at that, so we do require a means of keeping food fresh in the sweltering humidity. It is possible to buy the odd pig or chicken in the village, although there is very little surplus meat produced to supply us aliens. And where we are situated doesn't lend itself to keeping our own chickens. We can, though, obtain fish. Lots of fish. More fish than you could ever believe. And much of it most queer and certainly not available in Cod Almighty in Helvetica High Street. Electricity is provided completely gratis by the sun. There are photovoltaic panels discreetly situated towards the top of the beach, which provide ample power for the house and also feed a bank of absorbed glass mat rechargeable batteries buried under the sand inside a sealed chamber. These give us the electricity we need when the sun has no longer got his hat on. There is also a good old diesel-powered generator in a bunker at the side of the house for emergencies, although we've not yet had to use that. The hob in the kitchen has thus far also remained unused, for outside on the beach is not only a South African-style braai, but also a wood-burning oven, both beautifully stone-built. 
Firewood is, of course, plentiful, although the only way to obtain it is to go and collect it oneself. Correction, the only way to obtain it is to send your children off into the scary jungle to collect it. I am far too busy with my academic research for such mundane domestic chores, I'll have you know. The ovens, and indeed the cooks, are protected from the sun by a simple shelter constructed from four pine uprights supporting another Natangura leaf roof, although this one is made from green leaf to prevent it from catching fire. As it gradually browns and dries, we spray it with water for a while and, when necessary, simply re-roof it with more green leaf. Food cooked in the open on wood-burning stoves tastes indescribably better than it does cooked any other way. This is a completely unscientific statement, you understand, based on absolutely nothing other than my prejudice and subjectivity, but it's inescapably true nevertheless. I shall begin writing my thesis now. Shouldn't take long. As an ancillary bonus, it has got the children interested in both cooking and food preparation, to the extent that Caleb, in particular, has grown adept at gutting and filleting a fish, not to mention catching it. He says that he reckons he is ready to do whatever is necessary to prepare a chicken, and that's from scratch. Or rather, that's from the chicken still scratching around. I'm not sure whether or not this is youthful male bravado on his part, but while it is most definitely not something I could do, I think there is nothing wrong with the kids understanding where meat comes from and what it takes to get it on the plate. At least that way they can have an informed opinion when deciding their diet in the future. Richard is great in this respect. He always was a superb cook anyway, and he's done every outdoorsy thing you could conceive of in his past. You know, shark wrestling, bear baiting, elephant wrangling, and some shady dealings with various goats. So he can guide the little ones without subjecting them to any prissy Western preconceptions. I feel I ought to regale you with some magnificent and complex feast we produced in order to compete with your betrayal of Slater's haute cuisine, but in truth, our fare has remained pretty simple, although no less satisfying for all that. What we were fed on our first visit to the village is well worth recounting, though, but that will have to wait a bit. Meanwhile, our quotidian rations consist of things like fish, yams, fish, breadfruit, octopus, crab, fish, and a thing called island cabbage. There is manioc for when you are bored with your yam, taro for when you are bored with your manioc, plantain, fish, and coconut. Oh yes, and fish. And the most enormous lobsters I have ever seen. We do also occasionally have chicken or pork and by boat we get rice and milk and, at Richard's insistence, beer. I bloody ask you, and bloody fosters to boot! You have been listening to Letter from Helvetica by Andrew McIntosh. Starring Andrew McIntosh as John Stotter and Natalie Rolls as Abigail Wesley. 
brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk. The series is produced by Oliver Crocker, co-produced by Glenn Allen, Rob Cook, Tessa Crocker, Michelle DeSouta, Bryony Kelly, Tracy King, Paul Morris, Triona Palmer, Laura Pinifay, Lee Pointer, Valerie Rolls, Yulia Thurlow, and Andrew Ruff. And executive produced by Andrew Dyack, George Fairbrother, Edward Kellett, Sophie Pycroft, Amanda Rotherham, Kay Scoble, and Michael Seeley. Next time, Octopus's Garden. You can unlock all eight episodes and behind-the-scenes content on patreon.com forward slash letterfromhelvetica. To support our development of Series 2, we are accepting donations via coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com forward slash letterfromhelvetica. Thank you.